turn to the book of Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And um, what we've been doing the last several Sunday mornings is next Sunday is our church church's 20th anniversary. And in order to celebrate that, we're having the men that were here when we first started. Brother Clayton, uh, actually his grandson and his wife are with us today. And uh, he told me his age and I said, there is no way little Josh can be that old. And... Uh, then we started talking about other ages, and oh yeah, I'm that old too, amen? And uh, look at the pictures on the board there. Uh, you'll see some of them, you'll see this real skinny guy that kind of looks like me uh, holding a little baby. That's actually Peter and, uh, and Sarah. But um, uh, if, if there is one sermon that has shaped the ministry and, and given more direction, it is simply this one. When we were in churches asking for support, just like missionaries do, uh, this was most often the message I preached because this was the message that God had given me for the direction and the shape of our ministry. And 20 years after starting the church and seeing God do all the miracles, I come back and I said, you know what, we're, we're still here in this same message because it is really uh, a picture in God's Word. Now, some of you, we, we don't have time to go through the entire book of the Song of Solomon this morning. And uh, most time people say, well, that, that's that book we just don't read. And uh, all scriptures given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine. And uh, just to give you a two or three sentence summary here, God is using the picture of the king and his bride-to-be to help you and I understand our relationship with our king as we are the bride-to-be. And yes, there are struggles. I like what one preacher said about marriage. It's God's institute for the blind. Love is blind, amen? But after marriage, blind eyes do see now, don't they? And you find out that person's not quite as perfect. And sometimes people even resort to really strange things, which the book of Song of Solomon is full of strange things, to try to make sure that that love is there and that love is real. Before we start the message, I want you to understand, never doubt the love of the king. Because God is love. Amen. And so, if you've heard this before, I hope it will be a blessing. I realize many people have never heard this message. And I, I hope it will be a blessing. Uh, if no one else has enjoyed the last several Sundays of preaching old messages, I sure have. Not because I don't have to study, my friend. Uh, but because I enjoyed the the lessons that God taught me and see how things have worked out through the years. We're going to read three verses, verses 6, 7, and 8 of Song of Solomon, chapter 1. And here in these three verses, we have a summary of the entire book. And if you'll read the rest of the book in the light of these three verses, it will make much more sense. 
But the bride is speaking in verse 6, and she is saying in verse 6, Look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. Tell me, O thou whom my soul loveth, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Verse 8, the king answers. If thou know not, O thou fairest among women, go thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. Now what we have here is a meeting between the king and his prospective bride. And she is saying some strange things here. She says, look not upon me because I am black, because the sun hath looked upon me. Now we believe in a literal and simple understanding of our Bible. She's saying, I have a dark suntan. Now, if you live in California, on the wrong coast over there, the left coast, uh, tan is part of being there. If you don't have one, you're really out. Uh, Here in the East Coast, we kind of like that pale white uh, that comes from being under fluorescent lights all the time and inside of buildings and, and things like that. But what we have to do is we have to go back and understand the culture Why would she say a suntan was so horrible? Well, simply because the only young ladies who wore suntans in those days were those who did not care or have any opportunity to care about themselves. The slave girls had no chance. They were someone's property. And to have a suntan would meant that you weren't even thought good enough to be reserved for marriage to someone. You were just going to work the rest of your life. It was a reproach. And we sit there and we go through the facts and we say, boy, that doesn't make any sense. So let me uh, give my grand old illustration. Have you ever met anybody that hasn't taken a bath or done any personal hygiene in about a month or more. Do you like to be around people like that? Uh, Wouldn't it bother you if somebody like that came into church and sat down beside you, even if the aroma didn't reach you and make you ill? Uh, It would be revolting. It would make your stomach turn just a little bit. And I, I want you to understand that as revolting and, and, and sickening as that is to us, not taking personal hygiene, that the idea of this suntan was just as sickening and revolting to normal people in this day as a lack of personal hygiene is in ours. So imagine, here's the picture. You're engaged. You haven't seen each other in several months. 
Finally, you get to meet each other again. And gentlemen, you're standing there. And you see her approach and your heart starts beating faster and all of a sudden you take a second look. And then you take another one and you say, something's wrong. I know it's only been five or six weeks since we've seen each other, but she hasn't trimmed her nails, washed her hair. I, I don't think she took a bath since the last time I've seen her. Guys, how many of you be wanting to get out of that engagement like right now? Do we get the picture? See, in order to really understand what's going on, you have to think what they were thinking. Now imagine for a moment you're the bride. And you know what he is thinking about you. What are you going to do? You also know there's nothing you can do to change it. You're going to do what she did. Don't, don't look at me. And then you're going to do the second thing that she did. You're going to make an excuse. Now here's her excuse. She said, my mother's children were angry with me. said, everybody ganged up on me. My whole family turned against me. Now, why might they do that? Well, jealousy that their little sister would be chosen by the king. Is that any such an old uh, emotion that we don't participate in that anymore? Bitterness and jealousy and envy. And so what they did, she says, my mother's children were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards. Now, first time I read this, and again, I'm going way back. I Vineyards? Grapes? I mean, we have grapes all over Astoria, do we not? But... I began reading about what a vineyard was, and I found out the keeping of a vineyard was the most difficult and tedious type of horticulture known to man. It takes more labor to produce good grapes in a vineyard than it does raising any other crop known to man. At least that's what the encyclopedia said. I'm sitting here going, what is so much work? Well, I got out another book and started studying. I found out that they weren't kidding. And that uh, just to give you one illustration, how many of you have seen those little clusters of the little green grapes growing? Do you know that if you want the entire cluster to turn out right, that you literally have to rotate the cluster into the sunlight so that it ripens evenly? Otherwise... All of the sweetness will be drawn into the grapes that have the sunlight and they will become actually bitter or oversweet and the other half will never develop and you lose the whole thing. I'm not patient enough to raise grapes. Buy them in the store, amen? 
She didn't have that option. She was made the keeper of the vineyards. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us how many vineyards she has to keep, but she is saying here, the reason I look the way I do is because I had such a big job to do that I could not care for myself personally. I couldn't wait until the sun and the heat of the sun dissipated to do my work. I had to work night and day. But I've got one more problem to tell you about. But mine own vineyard have I not kept. She said, I I didn't even have time to stop at my personal vineyard, my own property, and take care of what belongs to me. She labored night and day and didn't get the job done. Now, we measure success by three basic things. Number one, appearance, do we not? I mean, you see somebody, you look at them, and you immediately begin forming thoughts about that person based on their appearance. Now, don't look at me like you don't do that. You do. That is human nature. By the way, let's just throw this in. I've heard too many Christians say, well, God looketh upon the heart. Don't judge the outward appearance. That is a perversion of Scripture, my friend. Man can only look on the outward appearance. If the heart's right, the outward's going to be right. Don't get that mixed up. Don't use that as an excuse not to have the outward right. You're supposed to have the outward right because that's the only thing man can judge by. Amen? Are we still together? We're just getting started here. We got a long way to go. But we judge people by their appearance. Let's give our bride-to-be an appearance judging. Uh, Zero. She gets no points at all. Number two, we judge people by their accomplishments. How many times have you heard somebody say something about someone? Well, now, when you meet them, I want to warn you, they're going to be a little weird. But don't let that bother you because they're really a good person. They can get the job done. I'm sure I've been described like that more than once. But it is accomplishments. We judge people by what they can do. And the last thing, possessions. I heard a preacher preaching about how beautiful, nothing is more beautiful than a bald-headed man in a convertible. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Apparently, he felt that his possession of the car uh, was actually overriding his lack of possession of hair. I I don't know. Maybe that's the point he was trying to make. Um, we're not, just, we're not going to go any further on that one. But the simple truth of the matter is we judge people by appearance, accomplishments, and if you like A's, we could call accoutrements, all right? Uh, the things you possess. 
We take our bride-to-be and we give her an absolute zero on all three accounts. Her appearance, and, and you have to understand, she could not live in the palace of the king as she was because it would be an insult and a scandal upon the reputation of the king. You see, it's not so important who she is, except the king had chosen her to be his bride. To bring her into the palace in her present state would have been demeaning the reputation of the king. It would have been injurious. It would have made people think less of the king as a king because he had allowed a person like that to become his bride. It would be an insult to the people he reigned over, saying that there was no one in my kingdom worthy to come in to my house and be my bride except this disgusting example of a human being. Are, are you getting, is it sinking in a little bit? And she is now face to face with the king and tries to explain the problem, the plight of her life, where she finds herself. And realizing the emptiness of her excuses and the, and the lack of reasoning here, she then gives her plea to the king. Verse 7. She says, tell me, O thou whom my soul lovest, where thou feedest, where thou makest thy flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turneth aside by the flocks of thy companions? Now, I don't know if you can or not, but I can hear the tears in her voice as I read these words. If she were speaking in modern English, she would be saying, King, I'm a mess. I understand I can't live in the palace, but I haven't changed my affection for you. The circumstances I find myself in, I, I'm not sure why I'm here. In fact, simply put, why do I have to be like this? Why is my life such a mess? when I should be the most privileged and happy person in the kingdom. You see, there's no difference between me and the most common slave in the kingdom, is what she's saying. If people were to look at me, they could not understand. They would not believe me if I told them I was the bride of the king. They would call the guys in the nice white suits and take me to one of those special padded rooms and put me there. And rightfully so, because only someone who has no understanding of reality would look like I do 
and make the claim that I'm making. The only problem is it's true. What in the world am I supposed to do? I can't live in the palace like this. I cannot enjoy the privileges of our relationship because of what I've done to myself. In essence, she is pleading for mercy from the king. Amen? Well, let's look at verse 8. For the first time, the king speaks. He says, if thou know not. Now, those few words right there, four words, says an entire paragraph, does it not? The word if. The word if means so much. It's one of the biggest little words in the English language. If, 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 if. How many times have you said if in your own life? But here's what the king is really saying. He's saying, it's not my fault that you're in the mess you're in. He is making sure that she and anyone who would read this story would understand very clearly that it was never the king's design for his bride to end up in such a reproachful and disgusting, abhorrent state of life. He says, the problem is yours. It's not that you could not have known the answer. It's that you don't know the answer. Have you ever been there? You thought you had it all worked out. You thought you were doing the best you can only to find out that it's not good enough and that what you thought you were going to straighten out, you really made a mess of. That is where she is in the first words out of the king's mouth were to completely affirm her understanding of herself that it was her fault she was in this mess and that the king never designed it to be this way. You know what the king was saying here? I'm not taking responsibility for your mistakes. That'd be pretty scary now, wouldn't it? But what's the second phrase in this verse? O thou fairest among women. You see, the king had to make her understand he was still the king. And that the king did have provision to keep her out of the situation that he, she found herself in. And by the way, he still has provision to get her out of the mess that she is in. But then he reassures her of his love. Apparently, 
the best of our understanding, this book had to be written very early in Solomon's life. It is full of joy and contentment and the struggles that a young man would have with a young bride. We know the end of Solomon's life. And what I'm going to ask you to do is just uh, cut that off and not bring that into this part. Hadn't happened yet. The best of our understanding, because Solomon, when he wrote at the end of his life, it was the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, if you're not depressed and want to be, read the book of Ecclesiastes, all right? If you are depressed, don't read the book of Ecclesiastes. Read Psalms and uh, read the Gospel of John and some of those passages. And then when you want to get help so that you won't end up where Solomon did, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Amen? But the king here says, O thou fairest among women... I made some promises to you and in spite of your reproach and your revolting appearance, in spite of your flimsy excuses and reasons, I'm not going back on my word or my commitment to you. I'll tell you what, those are some beautiful words, are they not? But then he says, go thy way forth. Now, thy is singular. He says, you're going to have to do some things, but you're not coming to the palace yet. You're not fit to live there. You're going to have to go your way at my direction. Now, here's the way you're supposed to go. By the footsteps of the flock. Now Solomon had great flocks and provisions. He says, you're going to have to follow those who keep my sheep and those who take care of the animals that belong to me. And he says, I want you to go forth by the footsteps of the flock. Now have you ever tried to follow in somebody's footsteps? Uh, That's not so easily done now, is it? But I'll tell you what, if you follow in the footsteps, number one, it means you have to be close. Uh, Number two, it means you have to go one at a time. And number three, you'll never get lost as long as you make the next footstep. Amen? And then he tells her to feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. And this is the part I love the most. Why would he say beside the shepherd's tents? Have any of you ever seen pictures of the land of Israel? Lots of grassy hills and very little forest. Very few trees. Where are you going to find shade? Uh, in the shadow of the shepherd's tents. Amen. And what would happen as she followed in the footsteps of the flocks? 
and rested in the shade in the shadow of the shepherd's tents. Well, the same thing that happens to all of those worshipers of the sun. They lay out in the sun all summer long. Then it gets cold. If you go to the beach, you freeze to death. And so you lose that wonderful tan. Only that would be the answer to her problem, would it not? And after a while, she would be fit to live in the palace of the king. And by the way, don't you think the shepherds were in contact with the king and would have informed him as soon as things were clean and right for them to be united in the way that they should have been? This is the picture of the book of Song of Solomon. How many of you have already thought about a thousand applications of this picture to our life today? Okay, that's where we're going now. You see, the vineyard is a picture of God's work in this world. Read Luke chapter 20. Jesus talks about the vineyard that he let out the husbandmen and they refused to render the fruits of the vineyard. And finally, they send his only son into the vineyard to receive the fruits of the vineyard and they kill the son and cast him out. But Jesus said, the stone that was set at naught of you builders is made the chief cornerstone. Whoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken, but upon whomsoever this stone shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Do you realize what Jesus had just said to the Pharisees? He said, there's going to be many of you that stumble at me in the ministry that God has sent me, and you're all going to be broken. But there's a few of you guys that I'm going to judge. The stone is going to fall upon you and there's not going to be anything left because he is the king. Um, How effective are we at world evangelism today? Let's stop and think about it. The vineyard is the work of God. We have been given the job. We could have a little history lesson here. If we wanted to, about the first disciples being sent out of Jerusalem, then Antioch became the center of world evangelism. Then we have the dark ages coming in and all of those things, and we have little bits of pockets of Christianity being persecuted by the Roman church during the Middle Ages. The modern-day missionary movement, when religious freedom was finally granted, came out of England about the time of our revolution. In fact, William Carey had already been many years in the land of India when the first American missionary to the East, Adniram Judson, met him in India and was baptized. But there's this little issue called the War of 1812 that made it totally untenable for an American to work with an Englishman. 
because their nations were at war with each other. And so Judson moved on to the land of Burma where he had an influence at last even unto this day. The Burmese Bible is the one that Mr. Judson translated. America took the mantle of world missions. But let me tell you something, we're not getting the job done. I think it's time that we take a look in the mirror and find ourselves as the young bride found herself. You see, when we attempt to do God's work with our effort, the only thing we accomplish is making ourselves unfit to live in the palace of the king. The only thing that we can really do is downgrade the reputation of the God we claim to serve. That's a scary thought, isn't it? But you see, until we look and see ourselves as we really are, we're never going to go to the king as she did. And our question could be very well the same. Why do you think Paul said, be not weary in well-doing? You know why? Because you can start serving God with human effort and you will run out of you before long. In fact, the things that you do accomplish won't last because they're not done of God, they were done of you. We can talk about the work of world missions. How about we talk about the work of personal holiness? How many of us fight the battle with the world and lose? No, we're not talking about the world. We're talking about Christians this morning. We struggle against ourselves and against sin. And we're brought face to face with our own sinfulness and lack of holiness. Does anybody else ever get there? You will if you open this book called the Bible and look into the mirror of his word. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. Somebody said, well, what's the difference between the saved and the unsaved if everybody sins? I'll tell you what the difference is. When you're saved and you sin, you go back to the king. And he listens. That's the difference. If there's any point in this message today, is we need to look at ourselves and go running to the king. And understand there is nothing in us that would make him desire us. There is nothing in us that would make him want our presence in his presence. But he still loves us. I'll quote Brother Thompson till the day I die. He knows everything about me, but he still loves me. That's my king. But he's got a plea. I mean, he's got a provision. We sing the song. God will take care of you. I love that song. 
But when something bad happens in your life, do you believe it? Or is it, God, why are you doing this to me? Wait a minute. He's the king. His provision is always the best. God is never anything but good. Amen? Do you believe that? How many of you are worried about the next election? You ought to be, as an American, but as a servant of the king. You'd better vote, but your trust better be in the king and not in your vote. Amen? And we're not here to endorse candidates, and it has nothing to do with the message, but if you can vote for somebody that is for sodomite marriage and for murdering little babies in the womb, uh, go figure that one out yourself. Amen? The provision. It is not if we cannot know, it is not the fact that we cannot know the answer. That is not true. That is a lie of the devil. We do know the answer. We have the answer. It is rest in the Savior. Amen? It is understanding that we have to go forth. He wants us to move. He saved us to do things, to serve Him, to walk in the footsteps. Can I tell you a story? When I was a little kid, my wife knows this story. She likes it. I do too. How many of you remember the great snowstorm of 1972 that just blanketed the whole East Coast? I mean, we got Hurricane Agnes in the fall, and then in the winter we got three feet of snow. Now, in Westminster, Maryland, where I grew up, they closed school if there was a half an inch of snow on the ground. I'm serious. It's crazy. And people ran and emptied the shelves. In all the, you couldn't buy a loaf of bread if you had the money. It was all gone because the storm was coming and we get an inch of snow. Wasn't even enough to go sled riding with. Well, that year we had enough. We had three feet. Everything was closed for three whole days. Now, in 1972, three feet of snow was right about here. It was a kid's dream. So he tried to move in it. Now, my dad had to get out in the snow and feed the dog or the dog would die. And shovel off the front walk and a few other things. And so there was some limited mobility if I would follow in my father's footsteps. Amen? I could get where... I remember getting stuck in the snow and going, Dad, Dad, dig me out. He says, I'm not doing it again, boy. So I learned to follow in his footsteps. But one thing my dad never did learn, to shorten his footsteps so I could follow in them. And I had to stretch it. I was everything I could just to make the next one. But as long as I stayed in the footsteps, I could go anywhere he had been before me. Are you with me this morning? 
Why should the king of kings shorten his footsteps so you can follow in them? If you can't get where you're wanting to go, maybe it's because he hasn't been there before you. Boy, he got quiet. We need to understand something. If we're going to follow in the footsteps, that means only one at a time. God does not have your time clock on his wrist. He's got his embedded in his word. And we'd do a whole lot better if we could tell time by his time rather than ours. And by the way, if we follow in the footsteps, guess where we're going to be able to take care of the things that we need? She asked, why thou feed, where thou feedest? Do you know why she had to work in the vineyards? Because if she didn't get the crops from the vineyard, she wouldn't eat. It was a subsistence society. If you didn't work, you literally did not eat. She's saying, King, I I need to be provided for. He didn't say this word for word in the text, but what he's saying is, my shepherds won't let the sheep go hungry. They're not going to let you go hungry either. You're to take care of your responsibilities in the shadow of the shepherd's tents. Now, our shepherd is also our king. Amen. He's been there before us. Read Hebrews. How many of you are resting in the eternal salvation that God gives? He saves you but he keeps you saved. Amen. Hebrews 3 and 4 is talking about a rest. That's where we stop working, verse 6 and 7, and let God work, verse 8. How many of you have ever felt the power of God accomplish something through your life that counted for eternity? That is the rest in the shade of the shepherd's tent. And if that's not happening, I want to challenge you today. You're not in the footsteps and you're not in the shadow of the shepherd's tent. If you're not in the shadow of the shepherd's tent, what you are doing is gaining more reproach and unfitness to live in the kingdom with the king. Are we still together? We've got to understand God does not need your efforts or your talents. He wants you to rest in His power and His ability. He wants you to be used by Him. You see, the wedding hasn't happened yet. And in keeping with the Jewish tradition, God has not set a wedding date. What we do here in the West is we set a date and, and the bride does all this work to get ready for the wedding. Well, in the Jewish tradition, the groom set the date. Only he didn't tell anybody. It was to be a surprise. Brother Franz will be glad that we're not under that tradition because who did all the work for the wedding? Well, the groom did. Because the bride didn't know when it was going to be. 
She just had to be ready. And the king would come. And one day as she was sitting beside the shepherd's tent, she heard a noise. It was the entourage of the king. And she was welcomed into his chariot and taken back to the city of Jerusalem for the wedding. What a wedding it was. She was to be married to the king. One of these days, we're going to hear a sound. It says, The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds, ever to be with the Lord. You know what the bride's job was to get ready for the wedding? was to let the shade take away the reproach of the world so that she would be fit to live in the palace of the king. Let me tell you, this is the battle that our church has fought for the last 20 years. This is the battle that has gone on in my personal life for the last 20 years. And it's the same battle that's going on in your life if you're trying to serve Christ. But you've got to decide whose footsteps you're walking in, my friend. Get out your want list and shred it. Or you're going to be forever confined to verses 6 and 7. You take the things of life that you say, I have to have. Let me tell you something. You're going to be in verses 6 and 7, living in reproach and unfit for the palace of the king. You say, but what I want is a, is a great church with a great testimony for God. Certainly he can please and bless that. No, he can't. Not if it's the work of Pete Montoro, he can't. It's his church, not mine. We call it our church because... We make up the members and we show up and pay the bills and go forward. But it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the king. Amen. And we want this church to be found unto praise and honor and glory to his name. And you know what? God's done that to a degree. Our church has a reputation. Yeah, that's the crazy church. God gave them a synagogue right in the middle of New York City. Well, actually, it's Queens. Oh, you're in the suburbs, right? I always like that. No. We have to put up with Mayor Bloomberg, too. Listen. The simple truth of the matter is, if we rest in our own effort, we're going to be a reproach and unfit to live in the palace. I'll end with one more story. Many of you know that when we were starting out on deputation, I worked as the bus mechanic at Cleveland Baptist Church. I had 16 school buses, a highway coach, a couple of staff cars, and an old rotten dump truck to take care of. And uh, kept me rather busy. 
But preacher was gracious enough to let me do most of the work at night. So during the day, I could call preachers and schedule meetings and, and do things to start that process that would eventually end us up here. And one afternoon, uh, while I was in the garage, there was this dirty old nasty window because the mechanic never took time to clean it. That was me, by the way. And up in this windowsill above the door, I saw this beautiful butterfly. I mean, he was that big around. Somehow he had wandered in, or she, I don't know what it was, through the bay doors when they were open, and when we closed them, couldn't get out. Well, being the kind-hearted fellow that I was, I opened the door, the little door underneath, and got a broom and tried to brush the butterfly out of the windowsill so it could go outside because the butterfly could see through that dirty stained window where it belonged. And it kept backing up and boink, backing up. And, and I'm sitting here, boy, this is ridiculous. Let me see if I can help this butterfly out. Now, I'd like you to put yourself in the place of the butterfly for a moment. And all of a sudden, you see this broom about this wide coming at you. You know, I wasn't thinking about all of this while I was doing it. It was afterwards that uh, everything came to mind. And as hard as I would try, I couldn't get that butterfly off the windowsill and out the door. Finally, I realized that Brother Thompson was not paying me to chase butterflies. And I didn't take a long time, but I needed to get back and fix buses. So I left Mr. or Miss Butterfly up there in the windowsill. And a couple of weeks later, some just reminded me, I wonder whatever happened to that butterfly. And so I took the broom and put it up on the windowsill. Down came butterfly wings. You know... The saddest part of that story was the butterfly was looking at the place where they belonged, but they couldn't get there. And the Lord reminded me of something. How many times through my own mistakes and sins I found myself on the windowsill of life, looking where I belonged, Wanting to be there. But I couldn't figure out why. And then you pray. God, please get me out there where I belong. And the broom shows up. And instead of allowing ourselves to be moved. By the hand of God's difficulties inserted into our life we run from them and end up dying on the windowsill. Let me ask you something today. Have you looked in this book lately and seen the reflection of your reproach and ability to serve Christ? If you haven't, I challenge you, you need to. When is the last time you went to the king? Said, Lord, things aren't working out the way they should be in my life. But most important of all, 
When's the last time you've heard the gentle rebuke of the king? I have the answers. It's not my fault. But if you'll listen to me, I'll give you the answer. And to start following in those footsteps one at a time. And when the sun comes up and gets hot, we sit in the shadow. shadow. We enjoy the shade of the shepherd's tents. That doesn't mean we're doing nothing. I'll tell you what, you'll be busier than you've ever been in your life serving Christ. But when it's his power and not yours, it's still rest. The reason we get weary in well-doing, because we're doing it. Not him. Our reproach is only removed as we follow in the footsteps of the flock and take care of our responsibilities in the shadow of the shepherd's tent. Are you there today? If you're not, you can be. Now understand, this message is preached to save people. Without salvation, you have no relationship with the king. You have no hope of attending the wedding. But if you will give your faith and trust to Jesus Christ, he'll save you today. Then you can begin to prepare to reflect his glory in that day. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed.